Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. You might be able to tell if you were here last week that I was um, a little down last week, maybe a little darker tone to the sermon this past week, and you might be thinking, why is the tone not similar? We left Jesus hanging on the cross this past week. He had been crucified. He was in agony, physical, spiritual, mental agony. Why, why is my tone maybe a little bit brighter today? As I was considering this passage this past week and thinking through how I might preach the death of Christ, like we're not even getting to the resurrection. Actually, we probably won't even get to the burial today. I don't, I don't believe we will. Um, we're just going to talk about the death of Jesus. Why would my tone be a bit brighter? Well, because ultimately the death of Christ, as I said earlier, is both the darkest moment in human history and the brightest. There's hope to be found in the death of Christ. And so this morning I find myself a little conflicted, maybe. Not conflicted, but I I feel two things at one time. I feel sadness for the death of Christ. And I also feel joy for the death of Christ. That he would die for my sake, for your sake, this morning. What an incredible thing. And so this morning we approach this passage with some trepidation, knowing that there is a mixture of feelings associated with this passage, associated with the death of Christ, and we're going to see that there's some juxtaposition to be found here. There's darkness and light in the same place. There's darkness in the death of Christ, but there is also bright light. And so this morning as we dive into Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 33, we will address the death of Jesus. And we will do so with both sadness and with joy. And we will hopefully leave here with an incredible amount of joy, knowing what has been accomplished for us in this death. And that we would go from here and we would live a life of complete and utter joy, freedom, because of what Jesus has done. If you're able this morning, I would ask you to stand as we read the Word of God. We're going to start again in Mark chapter 15, verse 33. We will read through verse 41, though I'll be honest, I may not get all the way there. We'll see what happens. Again, Mark 15, 33 says this, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran grabbed, uh, and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down, or come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance 
among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when, it, it, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Lord God, I just thank you for this time that we have together to be in your word this morning. Lord, it is a balm to our souls to hear that Jesus died for our sins. Lord, we thank you for that. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. Heavenly Father, we thank you for not staying your hand as you stayed Abraham's hand with Isaac. Holy Spirit, we thank you for applying this truth to our hearts and regenerating us that we might have faith to be justified. Thank you for this. I pray that you would impress this upon us this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Beginning in verse 33 here, we see some interesting natural happenings. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is about 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. noon. Um, there was absolute, utter darkness over the whole land. What an interesting thing that we would be, we would find our, uh, ourselves in this story and see, seeing this uh, being punctuated by darkness. That creation would respond to the gravity of the situation, of what was about to happen. That God would say, let there be no light for a moment. To punctuate this moment in history. It's interesting because last week I talked about how we were going to look deeply into the darkness of Jesus' suffering. And we were going to do that in order to be drawn to joy because we don't have to suffer what he suffered. This week, as I said, this is equal parts darkness and light. This is the execution of not just a good man, but a perfect man. And it is one of the most sinful moments in human history. All of creation then, like I said, responds to this, the gravity of what's going on and, and creation shuts down the light because God commands it and he says, not right now. And some people say, well, oh, well, it was just sort of that time of the year. It was a solar eclipse, some sort of natural occurrence. Not so, by the way. Impossible from a physical perspective. In fact, uh, Passover is always celebrated uh, during a full moon. And you cannot have a solar eclipse during a full moon. In fact, it's precisely the opposite phase of the moon you have to have in order to have a solar eclipse. This was not a natural occurrence. It just didn't so happen that Jesus died on the day that a solar eclipse happened to happen. It wasn't coincidence. And it was not a natural occurrence. This was supernatural intervention by God. I was reading a book uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, still in the process of reading that book. I put it down for a little while. It's a systematic theology, and the guy was uh, drawing the, the distinction between miracles and providence. 
And he's like, well, providence is where God kind of uses natural means, the warp and woof of history, to do things for his will. And then he said that miracles, the difference is that he steps sort of outside the bounds of normal uh, history, normal uh, physical laws. And this is what was happening here. He did a creative miracle. He created darkness. And this darkness was darkness. It was, it was sadness for the world. It's the death of Jesus. It was ushering in this moment of complete darkness to the world. But darkness for the world was hope for those who believed. See, the darkness here in these three hours recalled the darkness of the three days before the death of the firstborn in Egypt. You remember the, nine, or the ten plagues of Egypt, right? The, the ninth one was darkness. The tenth was the death of the firstborn. These three days beforehand, there was darkness. And so this moment, these three hours, hearken back to that time. Also Passover, right? The first Passover. And there was darkness. But people who knew what Passover was about understood that darkness comes before redemption. The world saw darkness and despaired, but for those who believed, darkness was a sign of hope. The death of the firstborn son in Egypt was the means of salvation by God for his people. He killed the firstborn in Egypt. The angel passed over all those who obeyed God by putting the blood on their doorposts. And then, what happened? Pharaoh let him go. Freed from, from, from slavery. Now, in Egypt, it was slavery to Egypt. Slavery to the Egyptians. For us, it's freedom from slavery to sin. For those who believe darkness here in this passage was a sign of hope. It punctuates this as a pivotal point in all of human history. Right? There's a moment where everything sort of shuts down and it's just dark, but it harkens back. And so everybody sees that this is a punctuation point. But those who believe, we also find our justification. We're going to come back to justification in a moment because we have to actually get to the death of Jesus. Look at verse 34 and 35. It says at the ninth hour, that's 12 noon, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Um, verse 36, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether will, Elijah will come to take him down. We'll look at that in a moment. But before we get to the mocking that was happening here, we need to see the forsakenness of Jesus. We go from darkness to forsakenness. It gets, gets darker before it gets brighter. This forsakenness was ultimately the cup that Jesus prayed would be passed from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. The suffering that he had come through to this point was nothing in comparison to what he was about to experience. See, last week we looked at the physical torture of Jesus, and 
We looked at what he went through before and during the crucifixion. And as dark as that was, and it hit me differently, not because that was the worst of it, not the worst of it. It's because it's the most easily paralleled to my own life. I know what physical pain talks, feels like. I don't know what Jesus experienced to that degree, but I'm familiar with physical pain. Each of you is familiar with physical pain. You know what that feels like. You know what emotional pain feels like. And so when we look at what Jesus suffered as a human being, we go, okay, I can kind of get that. And that weighs on me. But it's a little different because when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's something that we find harder to comprehend in and of ourselves. Uh, uh, let me digress for a moment. Um, Dale helpfully pointed this out in our uh, community group this past week. Plug for community groups. They're great places to be. All sorts of amazing conversation being had. He pointed out to, to the group that the, the physical, emotional, psychological anguish that Jesus felt just didn't compare at all to what Jesus felt when the Father's love, his kindness, was removed and replaced with wrath. Like, it's easy to comprehend to some degree physical pain psychological pain, emotional pain, but this deep spiritual pain that Jesus underwent is something that we as sinful human beings can never comprehend. Look, think about this. Because it's, it's easy to think about or talk about pain with which we are familiar, but as God the Son incarnate, Jesus had perfect fellowship with God the Father throughout his life. He knew no different we know what it means to be forsaken by God. We are sinners. We know what it means to be without hope. We've been there. We know what it means to not have a perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father. Jesus knew no such thing. His entire life from birth to death, well, this moment before death, he knew his heavenly Father was perfectly there for him. That he, his loving kindness was there 100%. It's like being brought up in an atmosphere where you have whatever you need. Whatever you need. Take your pick. I don't care. Like, make up your own image. I'm not in the mood for creating imagery today. So being brought up in, in, a, in an atmosphere where you had whatever you need, take your pick of what that is, and then having all of that ripped away from you, you might be able to start, just barely start understanding. This was a moment of incredible suffering. Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, yes, but he was also the perfect man that Adam was not. And as that perfect man and as that second person of the Trinity, there was perfect communion and that communion was broken. Now, some like to say that God turned away completely, that like Jesus was removed somehow from the Father's presence. No, 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 no. that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. Like I said before, he took the love and kindness that he was showing Jesus throughout his entire life and he took that away and did not merely take that away but replaced it with wrath. That was the trade. When Jesus took on our sin, God looked at him. 
He didn't turn away completely. He turned his love and kindness away, and he looked at him with absolute, unquestioning, unceasing, perfect wrath. And he poured it all out on his only son. This is not, by the way, cosmic child abuse. Some people like to say that the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, that is, penal punishment, substitutionary for us in our place, atonement, uh, paying a debt to God, making us right to a degree. They say that that's cosmic child abuse now because Jesus went willingly. He went willingly. And that's an interesting thing to say when you read the, the words in English here. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You might go, oh, was, was Jesus losing his faith? Was, was he questioning? No. No, Jesus wasn't questioning. This is a reference to Psalm 22. It begins with this cry, but it ends with redemption. Look at Psalm 22, verses 1 through 2. It says these same words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Jesus is not losing hope here, but he is crying out for us. We are forsaken, and he in that moment was forsaken in the sense that there was no loving kindness shown to him. This psalm begins in this way, and it goes on relatively dark for a little while. It was a difficult psalm to read and to study a little bit. Uh, we referenced this song uh, past, this past week as well, as uh, Jesus' uh, clothes were, were uh, they were cast lots for those clothes, and they were divided amongst those who uh, were crucifying him. In this same psalm, we, we read through and we see a prophetic pro- progression here. But that psalm where, wherein Jesus is expressing a deep agony, a deep forsakenness, not only for himself, but for us. This psalm that he quotes ends with something you might not expect. Psalm 22, 27 through 28 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. What? From my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To all of the nations will be blessed. They shall worship before you. Redemption. Redemption. Even as Jesus cries out in agony, he points again to the redemptive work that he is accomplishing through his suffering. He didn't lose faith. He wasn't questioning. He was crying out in agony to his God, to God the Father. He was crying out for us. And then he was pointing us to the work that he was doing. He didn't forget. He knew. But he wanted to remind us that after death comes redemption. 
If darkness that day then was a symbol of hope for those who believe because it foreshadowed release from slavery, then likewise that cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a symbol of redemption for God's people who know that redemption follows forsakenness. Isn't this true of our own lives? You've been forsaken. You've, look, we are all sinners. And as sinners, we are forsaken by God. Yes, he forbears us for a while. But as sinners, we are removed from his perfect loving kindness. But when we are made right with him by grace through faith, then we experience, we experience that redemption which was worked for us on the cross. And so Jesus cries out like this. And he, in fact, <laughs> I, I, it's interesting. Like I said, the, the world likes to think that this uh, that this quote here is Jesus losing faith. It's, it's not. He's actually just redoubling his faith. He's, he's restating that he believes. Just like Job said in Job 13, 15, we don't have it in the slides, but he says, though, you, though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's the moment of faith. When despite all circumstances, despite the wrath being poured out on Jesus, he says, I trust him. I'm in his hands. But the world doesn't understand this, and they didn't understand Jesus when he referenced this psalm. Again, going back to verse 35, and behold, some of the uh, bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Um, quick note on that. Uh, the, the words Eloi, Eloi uh, sound something like uh, Eliyahu, which is Elijah in, uh, in Hebrew. Um, and so they might have been confused. Uh, they might have not really understood what was going on there. They should have understood. They should have understood. But they didn't. They heard Elijah. And then in verse 36, it says, Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. By the way, this is a fulfillment of prophecy as well. Uh, and, it's, and then they say, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. <laughs> like, the world just kind of hears what they want to hear from Jesus. They're like, oh, like he couldn't possibly be calling out to God. He's crying out to Elijah. And, um, you know, we're just going to see if Elijah maybe will, will come make this happen. In fact, you might think, oh, well, uh, earlier in this, uh, in, in this chapter, um, a, a gift of, <laughs> I say a gift, uh, an offering of, of wine mixed with myrrh was attempted to be given to Jesus as an analgesic, as a, uh, a, a way to soothe his pain, and he refused it, right? You might be going, oh, well, now, at this moment, he takes something that will kind of numb the pain a little bit. No, this was, this was a, a means of hydration, right? It was a very light wine, most likely, but it had turned almost to vinegar, so there's very little left in there. Uh, it's a sour wine, right? And so what they were trying to do wasn't uh, give him some mercy. They were trying to keep him alive just a little bit longer, just to be entertained if Elijah happened to stop by. This is the way the world looks at Jesus. They look on and they ridicule, they mock him, even at his moment of death. I'm like, well, maybe, maybe Elijah will come down. Maybe that'll be a fun and entertaining thing to do, treating Jesus as if he's some mechanism for our entertainment rather than the savior of the world. Sour wine's not a mercy. But the, the world is 
disappointed when they see that what they want from Jesus is not what he gives. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This, these two verses, they're the, the moment upon which all of our salvation hinges. Jesus could, could have come and lived the perfect life. He could have died of old age. He could even have been have ascended to the right hand of God the Father. But without his substitutionary death, none of that applies to us. This is the moment upon which your entire salvation depends. It is both the darkest moment of human history and the brightest. Look, if Jesus hadn't died, we would be hopeless and without God in this world. But because he has died, we are neither hopeless nor forsaken. That's why I can approach this passage with both grief and joy. Because I can look at this and say, praise God, I have been made right. I've been justified. It's interesting. We're not going to get here today, but uh, in verse 44, Pilate says, uh, that it, or Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus had already died. You might be wondering, um, what, did Jesus just sort of expire over time, or did he lay down his life willingly? Um, the reason that Pilate was surprised was because crucifixion usually takes a while. Crucifixion usually lasts a couple days, which is crazy to think. That amount of, the amount of suffering imparted to people who were crucified in those days. Usually it takes a couple of days. You, like I said yesterday, you know, not yesterday, last week, you know, the, the bones in your, in your body and the muscles start atrophying. You can't hold yourself up anymore. And you just sort of slowly drown uh, in your own lungs. Like you can't breathe anymore. It's, it's slow, painful sorts of stuff. Um, usually it took a while. <laughs> but Jesus... He doesn't just lay down his life by going willingly with the crowd who came to get him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He actually gives up his life intentionally just at this moment as the darkness subsides. He laid down his own life. It was his choice. He did it. Elsewhere, he, he says that he has the power to lay down his own life and to pick it back up again. Also of interesting note in this passage is that uh, it says that he uttered a loud cry. This is the cry with which you are most likely familiar and that we sang today in that last song. It is finished, he says. It's done. Ask me why I think this is the punctuation point of all of our salvation, the thing on which everything else hinges. That's why. Jesus says, in this moment, as I give up my spirit, as I (laughs) leave this world for now, it is finished. All of redemption is accomplished for us in that moment. Jesus was going to return to the right hand of God the Father. He could take up his life again. But when he died for us, it was applied to us. We were justified 
made right with God by that loud cry, it is finished. He did it all right then and there. This didn't happen at the resurrection, which is certainly necessary for our salvation in total. We look forward to those days in glory, don't we? Absolutely necessary. Every step in the way of redemption that was wrought by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together in history was necessary. But the, the linchpin, the, the apex of redemptive history is the death of Jesus right here. And when Jesus died, he did accomplish our justification. And at that moment, it was finished. See, while we receive justification by grace through faith in Christ, justification was accomplished at the cross. But what's justification, you might ask? I'm going to tell you anyway. Maybe some of you are like, oh yeah, I know what justification is. Um, I don't know whether this is an appropriate uh, analogy, but we're going to use it anyway. Um, forgive me for trivializing some very deep things. Okay, I'm not, It's not inappropriate, it's just a question of triviality. Um, you ever used a, a word processor before? Like notes app, whatever else. Yeah, like I say, word processor. I, I don't know. I'm falling out of favor with the high tech stuff, and I'm a tech guy. <laughs> um, you, you know the alignment buttons, though, right? Like you get left align, you get center align, right align. And what's the last one? It's a, it's a block. What's the last one? Justify, right? It makes everything true on the sides, right? presents you with a nice laid out page that has perfectly straight lines on the side, right? It spaces all the little words out so that everything looks really nice. Ash loves the justify button. It's good for design. If, if we're looking at, at that as a, as a way to define justification, I think you can start to see it. If you're just left aligned, then you might have a little bit of a staggered line on the right-hand side. But it, when you justify everything, it's perfectly straight. Between us and God, there is a chasm of sin. God stands on one side, and then there's sin, and then there's us. And when Jesus died, that chasm was filled in. Perfect communion for all those who would believe. Yes, we receive justification by faith, but Jesus accomplished it at his death. And by dying on the cross, he took all of our sin upon himself. All of it. That's a, that's a, a, a scandalous thing to say, isn't it? All of your sin, if you are in Christ. All of it. Not just the stuff in the past. The future stuff, too. Scandalous. And he took that upon himself, and when he took it upon himself, he paid the debt. He paid the debt. We use that as a, as a good a analogy, too. That when we sin, we incur a debt against God that we can't pay back. We don't have the means for it. But Jesus, being a perfect man, died for us in our stead to justify us, to make us right. That's literally what that means to make us right with God. There's a song we sing called Jesus Paid It All. We sing, now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Love that song. I love that song. 
We're not going to sing it today, but I love that song. It reminds us that that debt has been paid, that punctuating moment where it is both the most heinous sin committed by man and yet the biggest work of redemption. We're called justified, made right with God. And then to show us that this is true, what does God do? Another creative miracle. It in verse 38, and the, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That veil being torn is just imagery. Maybe you're unfamiliar with the veil. In the temple, there, was a, uh, there were multiple places where different people could go. Some, people, some places, the, like all of the people were allowed, and you sort of progressively went inward, and less and less people could go there. Right? And then there was a place called the Holy of Holies wherein the, uh, the high priest had to be cleansed perfectly and completely uh, through ritual washings and things like that. And he could enter that place once per year in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. And what happened? God ripped it straight in two and said, not necessary. Done. His presence is no longer separated from people. His presence is here for us. We're justified, made right with him. We can have a perfect relationship with him. It is made perfect or is declared perfect by Christ, by the way. It's not that we have a perfect relationship with him in our perception on our side. But that torn veil represents our justification. It's not a coincidence or anything else, by the way. Like You might go, oh, well, somebody cut it or something like that. This was a, a giant veil. I've forgotten uh, exactly what the dimensions were. It's very thick, uh, and it is very tall. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, taller than, than, than this or about that height. I, I can't remember exactly what the measurement was. But a uh, very, very tall and very, very thick curtain uh, that was there. There was no good way for someone to cut it from top to bottom. You'd kind of have to start at the bottom and kind of work your way upward. Um, <coughs> and even then would be very, very, very difficult. Um, but God split it from top to bottom in order to show that all of, the, all of the former stuff was gone. We no longer needed a human, uh, a, 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 sorry, a non-Christ high priest <laughs> any longer. But his presence was with us. You might be going, okay, was this the only stuff that happened to like punctuate this moment? No, it wasn't the only thing. Mark only records these two things. He records uh, the, the darkness up to the point and then the ripping of the, of the veil. In uh, Mark's gospel, uh, I, I love this one, uh, there are also earthquakes and rocks splitting. Uh, that's, a, that's a cool one. Uh, like All of creation responds to the death of Christ by just shaking. Just an incredible moment. But the, the best part of this, uh, and I, I'll try not to make too much light of it uh, because it's a serious moment, but uh, I, I like to say that zombies are in the Bible. Um, Y'all can laugh, it's okay. Zombies are in the Bible uh, because Matthew records that those who were dead in, in Christ, those who were dead in the Lord were raised on that day. And then when Christ was resurrected, came out of the graves and saw people and met with them crazy moment <laughs> like zombies are in the bible not brain-eating zombies okay but like i like to call them zombies y'all probably shouldn't call them zombies maybe i shouldn't do this in front of you but there you go um 
But what an incredible moment, because not only is creation quaking in light of what has happened, but now people who were once dead are responding to this incredible redemption that God allows them to come out of the grave to show what God is doing, that he is going to redeem all of us, not just Jesus. He's not going to just bring him back. He's going to bring all of us back is what I mean. All of these are signs of what was accomplished in order to give us just a great, great, incredible confidence in what God had accomplished in that moment. And then in verses 39 through 41, we see some responses. We see some people that are standing around. I, I won't spend a lot of time here, but it says in verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Um, I hesitated to bring us all the way through the end of this passage, but I, I feel like it's necessary as, as a narrative piece here. I, I, we'll, we'll get there in a minute. But the, the centurion response here is pretty incredible. This man who was there with Jesus as he was crucified, probably one of them who had crucified him, looked at Jesus in that moment as he gave up his spirit willingly. And he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Making this incredible profession of faith in this dark moment where even the disciples were probably questioning. But this Roman centurion looks at Jesus and just says, surely this man was the son of God. Now, some people would say that from a textual criticism perspective that he might have said this man was a son of God, sort of implying that he was favored by the gods. Maybe his faith wasn't complete, okay? But I don't care. That little mustard seed of faith right there was implanted by God himself. And I like to think that this centurion was ultimately saved by grace. I like to believe that. That's not in the text, so forgive me. But I think the reason Mark records this is because that seed of faith was implanted at that moment. He saw Jesus die and he said, this man is the son of God. He is who he said he was. Now that centurion might not have known what was going to happen a few days later. But in that moment, there was faith. There was just a little tiny mustard seed of faith. And he responds, not with ridicule. By the way, from the point of Jesus' death, there's no more ridicule recorded. That's it. Everybody sees what happened and goes, I don't know if I can say anything else. Or if they say something, it's generally good things. Perhaps, perhaps that's where you sit today. Maybe you, you need to hear that, that small mustard seed of faith, wherever you're sitting right now. Maybe that's what you need to hear is that that small mustard seed of faith was planted there by God. It's a gift from him. Just grasp it. Hold on to it. Nurture it. It's a good thing. But interestingly, uh, and I, I, I will go here today, um, uh, let me preface this for a moment. I think there's a whole sermon to be preached on 
verses 40 and 41. Uh, the women who were ministering to Jesus. Um, and we may actually preach that sermon next week. I'm not sure yet, but we're going to go here for just a moment um, in order to sort of do what I've committed to doing this morning. Um, and we might call an audible next week to, to do that. We'll see what happens. Um, but it says, there are also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mac- Mary Magdalene. And this is the, the, the woman who, uh, out of whom Jesus had cast many demons. And uh, Mary, the mo- mother of James, and the, uh, the younger, and Joseph. Who, this is our first time ever being mentioned here, as far as I, I remember. And Salome, who is the mother of James and John. Um, and it says that when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. I just want to speak here to, to two things. One, this moment of, uh, of interjection here by Mark is a good thing. Because he says, look, while the disciples ran and had abandoned him, maybe there, there, were, there were a few at his crucifixion, but not many were still around. While they ran, the women that had followed him were faithful. They stuck around. They went with him throughout Galilee. They went with him into Jerusalem, and they were there at the end. And in fact, the the women here are the thread that binds together the rest of the narrative because they're here at Jesus' death. They're there as he's put into the tomb, and they're there as they come to embalm the body, and the angel speaks to them. They are the first ones to whom the good news of the resurrection comes. There's, a, there's probably a sermon to be preached here. Um, but let me say this. There's, there's two ways to respond to what's happening in this. Um, maybe you're, or maybe not two ways to respond, but maybe two places where we, where we land. Maybe you're like the disciples today. Maybe you're feeling a little bit far away. Maybe you're feeling like you've kind of fallen off the wagon, whatever it is. You've backslidden. Maybe you haven't been as faithful as you should be. Maybe today is the day where we're calling you, where God is calling you to repent and believe. Grasp that small seed of faith. Nurture it. We'll find in a couple of weeks when we address the resurrection um, that the angel had to call the disciples and Peter specifically Maybe this is that moment for you. You hear that Jesus died for all of your sins, every single last one of them. Man, maybe today's the day where you repent and turn to him. Look, even if you're a believer, you you may need to repent and turn to him today. We preach the gospel every week because we, we believe that the gospel is good news for each and every person, whether you've been a believer all of your life or you've been a believer for 10 seconds. The gospel is a good thing. It reminds you to repent and believe and walk in freedom. Your sins are forgiven. But maybe here today you're, you're more in the, in the boat of the, the women who have followed Jesus faithfully through this whole process. Maybe you're saying, like, I feel like I'm in a good place spiritually at the moment. I would just encourage you to continue on today. Let this moment of sadness, speaking of Jesus' death, and of joy, speaking of Jesus' death, remind you the freedom that you have in Christ. Today is the day that you 
get to be reinvigorated for the work that's before you. Jesus died for your sins. You're free. You can, you can go and do whatever it is that God has called you to do. What an amazing freedom. Before Jesus died for you, before that work was applied to you, I should say, before that happened, you couldn't do anything quite right. Maybe you still can't. But God looks at you and says, Pray, that is amazing, good job. Keep going. Because he sees you as his children. If you're in Christ today, you are a child of God. He looks at you like he looked at Jesus his whole life. He looks at you with perfect loving kindness. Perseverance. He gives you grace upon grace. Today, don't be, don't, don't get stuck in, in the despair of the death of Christ. Be encouraged this morning. He died for everything. All of it. Go and live like that. Because that's really the point, right? That's ultimately the point of everything. God's glory. Literally the point of everything. I'm not just talking about your whole life. I'm talking about everything. Anything that was ever created. Why was it created? For God's glory. That's it. God is not only the chief end of man, it is the chief end of all things to glorify God. And so today, if you're feeling like, like pressed down and you're feeling maybe condemned by even past sin, today is the day where you get to hear you are forgiven. There is no condemnation in Christ. Trust him today and go walk in freedom glorify him with your life. Ask the question, this is my application for this sermon. You can take it or leave it. I'd prefer you to take it, okay? Walk out of this place. Go to lunch, go home, how, wherever you want to go. Hang out here. I don't, I don't care. Spend a few minutes and just ask that question. If I am free from sin, if I am no longer a slave to unrighteousness, if Jesus has truly paid for every sin, and even when I mess up on the path, it's paid for. If that's the case, how can I glorify God with my life? What's one thing that I can do today to just say thank you to God? To just live according to what he's placed before me? What is one thing? That might be different for each of you. You might go, you might go from this place and you might go, you know what, I'm going to spend five minutes reading the Bible today. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you never do that. Maybe it's very seldom. Maybe that's what you're going to do today, and you're going to glorify God by trying to know him through his word. Maybe you go from this place and you want to do something big and flashy. That's your thing. Like You're like, man, I want to go be a missionary to wherever. Praise God for that. We want to work with you on those things. If that's what God has called you to, then he will equip you for it. We want to help walk alongside you as you do that. But ask that question. Ask that question each and every day. Tomorrow when you wake up, ask the question, Lord, what can I do to glorify you one more moment today? Because ultimately, this is what you've been given. You've been given freedom in Christ. You've been given freedom to glorify God with your life. Because before that salvation was applied to you, you could do nothing. All is filthy rags. But now, beloved children of God, 
what a joyful thing to be reminded of this today, that Jesus died for our sins so that we could be free. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.